Welcome to Warm Regards, conversations from the front lines of climate change. I'm Ramesh Longani, an associate professor of biology at Doan University in Nebraska. Joining me today is Dr. Sarah Myrie, a research associate at the University of Washington and founder of the Rowan Institute, a climate leadership think tank. Also joining us today as a third co-host is Andy Revkin with the National Geographic Society. Dr. Jacqueline Gill is on a top secret mission this week. And if I say anything else about it, this podcast will self-destruct. There were some clues on Twitter, I must say. All right. Well, um, well then hopefully we all run an equal risk of uh, <laughs> self-destruction. So dun dun dun. Yeah. yeah. So um, so there's been some really interesting things in the news, particularly from out west, out where you're from, Sarah, where you're based out in Washington, uh, having to do with the carbon fee. So maybe we can chat about that a little bit. So what's going on out in Washington with a carbon fee? Yeah, so this is about um, a carbon fee called Initiative 1631. It's going to be on the ballot for Washington state voters in the fall. And um, the fee is uh, essentially a fee on pollution, and it's designed to um, shape the economic forces that um, businesses and individuals um, uh, operate under to reduce carbon emissions in the state of Washington. The other thing about the initiative is that it was built with um, coalitions of communities of color here in Seattle and in um, also in eastern Washington. So it represents a very diverse community's um, view on how to move forward with carbon legislation. And the particular piece is that in this revenue generating fee, the, the fees are going to be spent um, investing in frontline communities, so mm-hmm. communities that have the most to lose immediately in the future of climate warming, and also investing in carbon mitigate, climate mitigation, so um, uh, investing in infrastructure, and then also investing in green technology. Um, so it's on the, the ballot, and what's really interesting about this is that there's also an opposition campaign called No on 1631. Mm-hmm. And the, the opposition campaign in the last couple of weeks has been flooded with out-of-state donations. They've raised $8.6 million. Wow. Um, from And the top five donors are fossil fuel companies, um, British Petroleum, Phillips 66, U.S. Oil and Refining Company. Uh, so the, the fingerprint of the fossil fuel companies and their their interests is very, very um, present right now in Washington to divert um, public attention towards the need to act on climate. Do you think that, I mean, maybe I'll just ask an unfair question. Do you, do you think it'll pass? Yeah. Well, there was a carbon fee. Um, it was actually a carbon tax um, in 20... It was 2016, that failed. And it failed by a fairly small margin. And it failed particularly because um, the, um, the, the, the justice communities here in, in Washington um, did not agree with the way that the money was going to be spent because it wasn't going to be spent. How that revenue is spent is really important. And for justice communities, um, communities looking at environmental um, racism and redlining and um, the health costs to communities of color, those communities really wanted to see investment in the upfront costs for frontline communities. And because that initial carbon tax did not have a, a, 
a framework to do that. It split the 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 sort of center and center left into two parties into and it partitioned the justice communities to say no against that carbon tax. So it was a really interesting development of how when when legislation uh, tacitly um, taxed towards the center and and leaves the justice communities behind, that what that message is then to the justice communities is we're going to do this more important stuff first, and we'll we'll go back to your like cutty pasty artsy fartsy you know social justice issues later, mm-hmm. and it forces those people to essentially relitigate their basic humanity in public over and over again. Um, so this new initiative was built from a much more diverse coalition, um, specifically uh, an organization called Front and Centered here in Seattle, to to ensure that this is a, a document that is representative of the people that actually live in Washington. Um, so I have great hopes um, that there is um, there's a that this can be passed by Washington voters because it behooves Washington voters to to look at the risks of um, unchecked and unmitigated climate warming in for, for what happens to our region here in the Pacific mm. Northwest. It's such a quirky situation. And I, one thing, this is Andy speaking, I wonder, is the left like doomed to always have these internal divisions? Because David Roberts, when he was, he wrote some really long pieces about how that played out. And but yeah. you see them elsewhere too. Like um, even when I was covering McCain-Lieberman in the early 2000s, or the aughts or whatever they're called, uh, you know, the left bailed on the bill when um, there was a nuclear provision that McCain insisted mm-hmm. on adding. And now, you know, that you have, even within the left, like Eric Holthouse used to be on this um, this podcast, uh, you know, was a fan of nuclear finally again. It's like, is this just kind of like one of these classic questions where why, why is the right more organized than we are kind of question? Hmm. Well, I think what it reveals is that anti-racism is a fundamental component of climate action. And um, we see, you know, just this week, we saw news that the death toll because of Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico is 3,000 people. And um, there's a real smart, um, smart is not the word, but a a transcendent writer here in Seattle named Charles Modete, who wrote this piece um, uh, like two weeks ago about how the frame of it was essentially until climate change kills large amounts of white people, there will be no action on climate change. And that was a, it's a really chilling and frightening component of our moral attention on climate issues. Um, So I think it's a, it's a, this, these are issues that I, that are very raw and, and really important for us to look at as, as science communicators and, and as citizens. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And I think that, um, you know, what's what's great about these initiatives is that, like you said, it's a, it's a broad coalition of individuals who are supporting this and it's derived from this broad coalition of, of individuals, which I think really points to the fact that ultimately action, um, you know, there is still hope around action on climate change. And so... You know, and so to me, this is a manifestation of that hope, even though there are some forces working against it pretty strongly, as you said, 8.6 or $8.7 million raised by opposition forces or opposition to the bill. um, I think, you know, that the fact that that opposition needs to be at that level is really a manifestation of, of sort of we can tackle this if we do it the right way. 
Absolutely. And people should, I mean, people should know that that out-of-state money is flooding into Washington state to distort this this decision and the public's interest in climate action. And it's, we mm-hmm. should be outraged that, um, again, because of Citizens United, money is considered speech in this country. And it's, it's just a hijacking of the democratic process. And it's a, it is such a incredibly important thing to look directly at and inform people. Because I, I do think regardless of how you sit on the political spectrum, um, Americans don't like um, the influence of big money and power brokering in their democracy. It's really distasteful. But the problem is, is that it's just unseen. So I right. think our our job here is to reveal those nefarious actors. And, you know, these people, they have a vested interest in um, this carbon fee not moving forward because it helps their bottom line. They will profit from this. So there, there are people and corporations that are profiteering off of heating the planet. And it's, it's amoral. Right. Um, yeah. Right. Well, <laughs> uh, what we'll do, what we'll do is, um, you know, I think I think talking about this carbon fee um, is, you know, despite the potential nefariousness of, of the opposition, um, <laughs> you know, the carbon fees sort of a, a great lead into today's guest. Um, so today's guest is Steve Valk. He's a communications director for Citizens Climate Lobby. Um, he's the writer behind materials distributed by Citizens Climate Lobby, uh, volunteer groups that uh people that volunteer with Citizens Climate Lobby and directs a lot of social media efforts. Uh, Steve's letters and opinion pieces have been published in newspapers throughout the U.S., including the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the New York Times, USA Today, uh, San Diego Union-Tribune, and the Philadelphia Inquirer. So um, I think we're all really excited to have you here on the show today, Steve. So thank you so much for being here. Um, and uh, why don't we start by um, why don't we start by having you tell us about who you are and why climate and why writing? Great. Well, thanks for having me on, Ramesh. I really appreciate the the opportunity to be on warm regards here. So I I kind of came to this issue sort of uh, a circuitous route. Um, I worked at the Atlanta Journal Constitution for. 30 years. And while I was doing that, I was also a volunteer with an advocacy group that worked on hunger and poverty called Results. And very small organization that most people have never heard of. Uh, and yet they were highly effective at uh, influencing government policy and government spending toward reducing poverty and improving global health around the world. Uh, they you know, increased funding for child survival activities, uh, microcredit programs, uh, and uh, you know, money for the Global Fund to fight AIDS, wow. TB, and malaria. And so I was doing all that, and, uh, and then I left the newspaper in 2009, took a buyout, and uh, I started looking around, okay, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And I happened to know a guy named Marshall Saunders, who was also a volunteer with Results. And he had started a microcredit program down in, uh, down in Mexico based on the Grameen Bank model in, in, in Bangladesh. And so I, I found out, oh, I'm, he's just started this organization called Citizens Climate Lobby. 
And what he was doing was to take the advocacy model of results, which is to empower citizens, you know, to be the lobbyists, you know, because that's that's really where the action is. If you can get constituents to develop relationships and talk to their members of Congress, you can get a lot of things done. So he thought, well, I'm going to start an organization that does that. So I was familiar with the uh, with the model for the organization and I had the media background. To be honest with you, I did not know a lot about climate change. And so when I started uh, doing a little research into it, uh, I had you know, kind of the journalist mindset. Oh, OK, well, you know, let, let, let's look at all sides of this, you know. And, and then finally, as, as I was looking at this, oh, the, the, there really is only one side. <laughs> you know, there's, not, <laughs> there, there's yeah, there's there's the there's the people who are sticking their heads in the sand. And then there's the people who have the data to back up what's going on in, in, in the world. I think it was in the. Naomi Oreskes' uh, uh, study, you know, that revealed that, you know, all the people, you know, who are basically doing the research on this are are in agreement. So I said, oh, okay, well, so there's no argument on this. So, um, so anyway, so so that's how I I, I came to the issue. And, uh, you know, Citizens Climate Lobby, uh, as as you say, it's it's a, it's grassroots organization that's uh, basically empowering uh, people to reclaim their democracy. Uh, Democracy actually works. Uh, You know, the government will actually do things that people want if people tell the government what they want. A lot of times people just sit in their living rooms and yell at the TV. They never, you know, write a letter to their member of Congress. They never write a letter to the editor or something like that. So so that's what we do. We, we, We train people to uh, to develop that relationship to to engage with their with their government and and to do it in a way that really facilitates a uh, an, an extended dialogue in other words you know don't go in there and just start yelling at, at somebody who you disagree with or said or did something you didn't like or anything like that because that'll be the last time that you talk to them Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, so we, we have a very rigorous uh, kind of training program for our volunteers to, uh, to, to do this type of work, to, uh, to meet with members of Congress, to develop those relationships. And uh, it, it, we're, we're, we're making progress. It's not, it's not going as fast as, uh, as everybody would hope, but we are seeing significant progress in, in, in terms of uh, you know, Democrats and Republicans actually coming together now and, and talking to one another about solving climate change. And we're, we're very hopeful that there will be a bipartisan bill uh, to price carbon uh, coming out very soon, uh, if, if not uh, before the end of this year, certainly uh, in the beginning of the, uh, of the next uh, Congress. So uh, that's, that, that's a little bit about me and, and, and what we're doing. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, Steve, I have a question for you. Sure, sir. Yeah, so um, tell me a little bit more about Citizens Climate Lobby. Is it, just so we understand what kind of entity it is, is it a, a corporation? Is it a nonprofit? Um, how is it structured? Who's at the top? Right. That kind of thing. It, it, is, it is a nonprofit. Uh, it was started by, by Marshall Saunders. Uh, he actually put up the money. He, uh, he, he made his money in real estate. And uh, he's just one of these guys, he's in his 70s now, and uh, he's, he's just one of these guys who kind of looked at the world and thought, okay, what are, what are the big problems out there 
you know, mm-hmm. that I can have an impact on. And so for the first few years, he actually funded the, the organization himself. As, as, as he likes to put it, he wanted to see if this thing would fly before he started asking other people to put up uh, money for it. And, you know, it, uh, it, it took off. I mean, we, I think when I came on board, we had about a, a dozen chapters uh, in the U.S. Most of them were in California. And, uh, and now we have uh, over 400 chapters around wow. the U.S. Uh, we are, uh, I think we have chapters in 385 out of the 435 congressional districts in the country. And, and, we're, and we're making a big push right now to, uh, to get chapters covering every, every congressional district in, in the country. So, uh, so we're getting money from, uh, from foundations now and, and major donors. We, we don't take any, uh, any corporate uh, money or anything like that. But, uh, and, and we do a lot of grassroots uh, fundraising where our chapters will organize, you know, they'll, they'll throw a little fundraiser and raise, you know, $5,000 or $10,000 or, or something like that. So, uh, yeah, that's, does, does that kind of answer the question for you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it absolutely. Does. Good, good. Yeah. Okay. Um, I guess I'm curious to find out. Uh, so some listeners might want some sort of initial context because this might be the idea that they might not have not been familiar with the idea of a, you know, sort of economic incentives around carbon emissions. So why, mm-hmm. um, why is Citizens Climate Lobby interested in using economic incentives um, or, uh, you know, to reduce emissions of carbon? Mm-hmm. Right, right. So we're very firm believers in the fact that if you're going to solve the problem, uh, it has to be done in, in a bipartisan way. I, I think when, whenever we've tried to do things on, on a partisan basis, uh, it's the, 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 there's a lot of downside to this. Uh, you, uh, uh, you know, one party is in control uh, for a certain number of years, and then they're, and then they're out of power, and then the other party comes in and undoes what that party does. I mean, you, you're seeing that with uh, with healthcare right now, uh, and and so forth. So, so we really believe that for any solution to be, you know, long lasting, to really hold up over time, you have to have buy in from uh, from from both parties. So. Uh, so looking at it from that perspective, uh, if you're going to get you know, Republicans on board, obviously Republicans are not a party that believes in bigger government and more government spending and more regulations and, and, and that sort of thing. So how do you then uh, you know, bring down those, uh, those carbon emissions uh, in, in a way that won't conflict with the with, with the values of, of of Republicans, and so that's that's why we tack toward, you know, the the economic incentive of a, of a carbon price, uh, and uh, it, it can be very effective. We had a, a a study that was done on on our proposal where you have a a fee on carbon dioxide that starts at. Uh, you know, I think the study started at $10 a ton and went up $10 a ton each year. So it went up very aggressively. I mean, within 10 years, you'd hit about $100 a ton on, on the CO2. And what the study found was that after 20 years, you will basically bring 
uh, uh, carbon dioxide emissions down uh, to you know 50 percent below 1990 levels. Uh, but at the same time, you would also add uh, something like 2.8 million jobs uh, to the economy because the other part of our proposal is, is that it's revenue neutral and all of the revenue then would go back to households as, as equal payments, equal monthly payments. So the, the, you know, somebody who makes $20,000 a year would get as much as somebody who makes a million dollars a year. And because that money is being returned to households and then getting circulated back into the economy, that ends up producing uh, a, a lot of jobs and not necessarily jobs in the uh, in the renewable energy sector. I mean, there, there will be jobs coming out of that, but you get jobs in, in the healthcare field uh, because all of a sudden people have a little bit of extra money well, the first thing that they're going to do is, uh, you know, go to the doctor, you know, get that uh, that doctor appointment that they've been holding off on because they didn't have the money to do it because they had, you know, rent to pay and food to right, buy and, right. and, and, and stuff like that. Yeah. So um, so that that that's why we look at uh, at solving the problem in economic terms, because that's that's the way that we're going to get the whole country on board. And I you, you, you saw back in uh, you know 2010 when you know cap and trade uh, came up short in, in in Congress. It was basically because there there was no there was no support basically no support from Republicans. There was a handful of them that voted for the Waxman Markey bill, but um, but for the most part, it, it was a democratically uh, you know driven uh, agenda and. and and, and one that, that didn't generate a lot of support outside of the Beltway. Uh, you know, I, I think most of the public was very confused about it, really couldn't wrap their head around it. And so ultimately it, uh, it, it, it failed because uh, it, it lacked the support down in the district level of, among constituents of, of members yeah. of Congress. And so that's why we're trying to do this kind of from, from the bottom up, you know, from you know, the constituents driving their members of Congress. Um, so Andy here, uh, I, I first wrote about this concept back in 2008 when uh, Peter Barnes floated the idea. And it's been around for quite a long time. Jim Hansen became a big fan, of course, and he was a supporter, supporter of yours. Mm -hmm. But I've been writing for quite a, actually since that time, uh, I've been writing a, a lot about the questions that have come up about how much of a gain toward actual climate progress, emissions reductions you can get with carbon pricing. Mm -hmm. And in 2009 in Copenhagen, the, the um, International Energy Agency put out a report saying that the price, to get a price high enough to actually start to bend emissions curves would take, uh, well, at that time, in, in 2009, they were talking about 2025, is the point when you'd start to see the needle deflecting. And that that's on a timescale that it seems so detached from the level of emissions changes you would need that it's hard for me to get excited about this model. I, I don't want to pour cold water on it. I think all this experimentation is really important, but I do still feel, and Jim mm -hmm. has never answered the question to me of um, how does this relate to um, the spurring the technological changes you would need to have a, a, something like electric transportation that's cheap enough for everybody to, to utilize as opposed to just Tesla buyers. <laughs> it just, there, there's these huge mm -hmm. gaps and I, I <laughs> want to kind of, get your sense of um, how that argument gets uh, carried forward. 
Right. So in, in, in terms of the, the technological advances that, that, that we need and, and so forth, uh, yeah, yeah, you do, you do want to spend money on research and development, but, uh, but the private sector can, de- can, can definitely come up with the money for that research if there is the, the incentive for them. private sector has not done to- historically... Well, they haven't. They haven't done that because there, there, there is no price on carbon. You know, right. you know, fossil fuels are, are are still cheaper than you know low carbon uh, forms yeah. of energy. Uh, once you put that price on there, and 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 companies see, oh, there's money to be made here. You know, that's when they're going they're going to come up with the with, with the cheaper electric car or you know the the the, the storage capability. Already, we're we're starting to see the demand for these things and 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 the demand I, I think will only start taking off more and more once once we get that that price and the economic incentive is is there uh, you know money talks these uh, these these companies you know once once they see that there's a, there's a dollar to be made on on this they'll they'll jump in there they'll uh, they'll, they'll they'll come up with the you know the better mousetrap One thing listening to your description of this um, this sort of mechanism for redistribution of the cost, the externalized cost of carbon, is um, it sounds a lot like an anti, not just a fundamental lever of climate action, but an anti-poverty lever as well. And I wonder, we're going to talk about bipartisanship and communication in a little bit, but I wonder if how you talk about the aspects of the anti-poverty aspects of a mechanism like this, right? So, 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 Sarah, I, I guess what you're getting at is, uh, yeah. won't there be pushback from from some conservatives saying, "Oh, this is uh, income redistribution"? Is, is is that basically what you're what you're saying here? Well, I, yeah, and I think there will be conservative arguments against it, and there will be left and liberal arguments or progressive arguments for it, and so I. I wonder how that impacts the way that you, you you communicate about this in public and the cost and benefit of this. Right, right. I I, I think the the main way to uh, to, to to sell this it, it's just a question of, of fairness. We have a problem, you know. Our our climate is uh, is changing in ways that uh, are are going to make it unlivable if we keep going down this road that we're on. And so uh, the people and the, you know, the industries that are causing the problem should be paying the, the price for, for, for this. And so, uh, you know, in, in terms of the income and obviously uh, the, the poorer households uh, are going to end up keeping more of the uh, what we call the dividend of the carbon fee than, uh, than, than wealthier households, but they're going to be doing that because they have a smaller carbon footprint. They, uh, they, most, a lot of them don't have cars. They, they live in smaller houses, uh, and so forth. They're not, they're not flying around all over the world and, and so forth. So if you have, yeah. uh, you know, a, a smaller carbon footprint, why should you not, uh, you know, Kind of come out a, a little bit ahead. Well, why should you not be rewarded for that? I mean, and and the wealthier people who have the larger carbon footprint, well, you know, they've got the money to to put solar panels on their houses and and buy a Tesla and and all of those things. So uh, 
yeah, I, I, I just don't, uh, I think, yeah, there, there will be people who push back on this as, uh, oh, this is a form of income uh, redistribution. But I, I, I think in the end, you're going to see a, a significant number of, uh, of Republicans saying, yeah, this, this makes sense to me. It's, it, it's a market-based uh, solution. It's, it doesn't involve uh, more regulations. And, uh, and, and, and it create, it's good for the economy. It's, it's, it's a win-win for everybody. So, yeah, you're, you're not going to please everybody, but I think you're going to please enough people that you can pass some legislation. All right. Um, you know, you sort of mentioned this, this bipartisan aspect of things. Um, so I think it's really great that you're trying to build a bipartisan coalition. Can you speak to some of the challenges that you face in trying to build that bipartisan coalition? Yeah, yeah, there, there, there are a, a number of challenges on, on this. And uh, we've been at this for a while. I mean, the organization has been around since, uh, since 2007. We really didn't uh, start taking off until 2009 when, uh, when Mark was hired as our executive director. But uh, yeah, in, in, in terms of, uh, you know, making progress with Republicans, uh, it's, it, it's, it's been kind of an, an uphill battle. And we had our first big breakthrough at the beginning of 2016, when we were able to convince, uh, you know, Carlos Curbelo from Florida to join with Ted Deutsch, uh, a Democrat from, uh, from from Florida, to create the Bipartisan Climate Solutions Caucus, and so so now we now we have a a group that's evenly divided between Republicans and Democrats who are you know they're, they're saying okay let's stop pointing fingers at each other and 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 shouting and you know using all of this uh you know this vitriolic rhetoric uh you know that uh, that really doesn't get us anywhere and and have a decent conversation about this and and the challenge uh has been yeah there's a there's a lot of money out there uh that is keeping republicans from doing what a lot of them really want to do a lot of republicans i you know recognize that we have a problem and they want to do something about it but they also want to keep their seat in congress and so uh, so the, the Koch brothers figured out a, a long time ago that you know they don't have to put pressure on you know both parties to stymie any progress on on climate solutions all they have to do is scare the bejesus out of the republicans and and that'll keep them in line so you you have uh you know that element of it that there's there, there's fear there's genuine fear on, on on the part of republicans uh to to step up on this issue because they they think they'll get primaried out of their seat or something like that i mean you actually saw that with bob inglis in south carolina in in, in 2010 you know he, he became the uh, sort of the cautionary tale there he actually introduced a carbon tax bill in uh, in 2009 and he was primaried out of his seat. Trey Gowdy was the one who uh, who unseated him, and and a lot of that was because of his position on climate change. So, so what we have to do as constituents and as an organization is to demonstrate to them that if if they if they step up on this, we'll have their backs. We'll we'll flood the newspapers with letters to the editor and op eds. 
and, and, and really, you know, do the things that need to be done on the local level, like, you know, getting endorsements from, uh, from chambers of commerce and uh, city councils and, 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 and things like that. I think if you can, you know, once you show any member of Congress, regardless of what party they're in, once you show them that they have support in the district to step up on an issue, they will step up. And, and so that's, yeah, it's been a challenge, but, you know, we're, we, we've looked at the challenge and said, okay, you know, what are the things we need to do to overcome that challenge? And, and we're doing those. And right. And now we have a climate solutions caucus that has 86 members, uh, 43 of them Republicans. And so, yeah, yeah that's, yeah. that's are, really you, are you kind of assuming this is all in a post Trump world or are you building toward that? Or do you see any prospect of this unfolding um in its, however many years or we're still in president years. <laughs> uh yeah so 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 basically uh you you are saying uh, okay so if congress if by some miracle we can uh, pass a bill in, in in the house and and then by a bigger miracle pass one in the senate uh you know won't the uh, won't won't Trump no, no, veto, the veto the bill? Question. It's uh, uh, you know the dynamics and chemistry in Congress is still subject to um, his presidency, so, so it really goes beyond the veto counting numbers. This is this is true. This is true, um, and uh, I, I I think what we have to do is uh, you know just take things one step at a time. You know, and and, and the first step is to get Congress to take action. Uh, and, and, and that's what we're doing at, at some point, of course, you know, there has to be a strategy, you know, if you, if you're trying to get something enacted before 2021, you know, then there has to be another strategy. Oh, okay. Well, how do you convince the administration that it's in their best interest to, uh, to sign this bill, you know, and that's, that, that's going to be a pretty, <laughs> a pretty tall cliff to, uh, to, to scale. But, uh, at, on the other hand, you know, we're not just going to throw our hands up and say, "Oh, it's it, it's it's hopeless." You know, that's not uh, that's not going to do our world any good. You know, we just keep keep moving, keep working on it, and find uh, a way to to make it happen, to make it work. Uh, yeah, it's it, it's 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 going to be tough. And you know, if if we can't do that, then what we're doing then is is we're laying the groundwork for. Uh, for legislation to to get passed and enacted in uh, in in twenty twenty one, but you you can't just start at uh, at, at square one in twenty twenty one. You know it's uh, you know what we do now. Uh, if if you can't get a bill signed before, then what we're doing now then will will definitely lay the groundwork for something to happen. You know, in the first hundred mm-hmm. days of of a new administration. So, Steve, I have a question for you because sure. I have been lucky enough to um, get some communication training from Bob Ingalls. Um, I went to D.C. a year and a half ago with um, the American um, Academy for the Advancement of Science for their Climate Science Day on Capitol Hill. Mm-hmm. So we got a half-day training prior in part with Bob. And one of the things he said, he's, okay, he's incredibly charismatic, of course. He's a politician. And he's very insightful about the rhetoric from the right and left around all of this. Mm-hmm. And one, one of the things he said was he, he pointed at the audience and looked at all of us and he said, 
you all are the problem. And here's why you're the problem is because anytime we talk about climate, what you also require is for conservative um, lawmakers to essentially like walk the plank in public, walk this, you know, public walk of shame, because not only do we want you to agree with us around um, uh, putting a price on carbon, but we also want you to agree with us on um, the age of the earth and evolution and uh, a woman's right to choose and the role of science in public policy and all of this other stuff that we, we do actually want. Right. And, and so it was really insightful though, Mm -hmm. around the baggage that we come to these conversations with, Mm -hmm. because we, we, there's a, no one wants to be publicly shamed. Right. It's not, that's not an incentive that brings people to the table. Um, so I wonder if that resonates with you and maybe if you have any tips for like, how do we get off this shaming bandwagon and just get to building consensus? Yeah, no, that, that's, that, that's a terrific uh, point. And, uh, and I I love Bob. I, I I met him in, in 2010, uh, at a carbon pricing, uh, conferences right, right after the elections in, in, in 2010. And, and if you just, uh, I want to just t- take like 30 seconds just to talk about him for a second. You know, here's, here's a guy just lost his seat for, for, for sticking his neck up. You know, most politicians would do one of two things. They, they would either say, you know, figure out, okay, what did I do that cost me my seat? I'm going to mount a comeback and I'm never going to do that again. Uh, that's one thing that they do. The other thing that they can do is they say, oh, well, I've got all these connections now on, on, on the Hill. I can go down to K Street. And get uh, and get a six figure salary pretty easily. He did not do either one of those. He uh, he he saw climate change really as as his mission. And and from from that point on, even even after he lost his seat, he he figured out what he was going to do to advance uh, this uh, th- th- this issue and and get conservatives to join in being part of the solution. So. Um, so, so yeah. In in, in terms of uh, communicating to, uh, to 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 Republicans, um, this is something that I learned uh, back when I was uh, being an advocate in results. Uh, you know, working on on, on hunger and poverty. Uh, when when people go and, and they meet with a with a member of Congress, uh, they do bring in all that baggage with them. They, they they do think, oh, you know, he said this, he did that, you know, he all of these things that he did that I, I can't stand. And so, even if you walk into the room and don't mention those things, if if that stuff is kind of kicking around in in your mind, it's going to affect the way that you communicate with somebody. And so, what what, what I learned uh, a, a long time ago. Is that you have to let go of being right if you want to make a difference, and so yeah. and it, it is just so, so true. And and what we do is when we when we go into a uh, a congressman's office, uh, the very first thing that that we do is we find something that. We genuinely appreciate that that member of Congress said or did. Doesn't necessarily have to be something about climate change. You know, it could be something about civil rights or or, or whatever. But we can. First thing we do is we acknowledge them for something, and that just that little gesture right there 
changes the whole tone of, of the conversation. I mean, you can imagine if you've never met with an, if you've never met with an organization called Citizens Climate Lobby before, and and, and you're looking at your schedule and you go, oh crap, I'm going to get my ass kicked now. You know, and then the first thing out of our mouths is, you know, us thanking them for something that they did. It's kind of like, wow, I wasn't expecting that. And so it it, it changes the whole tone of the conversation. The shields come down and uh, and it it opens up the conversation. It's kind of like, yeah, we, we both want a world where our children and our grandchildren, you know, can 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 live, uh, you know, healthy lives. And, and so forth. Let's let's start from that standpoint and see if there's, uh, you know, some common ground that we can reach in terms of solving the problem. Let's let's you know. And, and so that's that's the main thing is, is just this whole business of, you know, letting go of being right and seeing the, the person that you're talking to as, as somebody who who cares about the world and cares about people just as much as, as, as we do. They, they, they just have a, a, a different uh, way of, of looking at, at the world. And you have to kind of get inside that world a little bit and find out, you know, where can we find agreement to solve the problem? Well, Steve, uh, <laughs> letting go of being right is not in line with my public brand as a militant fem- feminist. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, I'm going to try to take your words to heart there. I mean, I'm wrong all the time. Like it's not, it happens all the time, but, um, boy, it's really hard to be wrong in public. It's one of the, the most uncomfortable and difficult. And then mm-hmm. really, really necessary because it, there's the, you know, there's a vulnerability, there's some traction that you can get in public by, by being wrong mm-hmm. and, and then, and then correcting. Right. And so people get to see that there's, there's a path forward that we're not all um, like uh, siloed and militant um, in our own camps. Now I, I may not be able to back off the, this issue around women not being service animals. <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> But I like. I really hope we can find some bipartisan port, support for that position. Mm-hmm. Um, but thank you. That was. I think it was really a, a sharp and insightful, especially around this piece around acknowledging and acknowledging the good work that's already been done mm-hmm. to try to build bri- a bridge and build trust right. initially. Right. Well. Well. Th- thanks, Sarah. I I, I just kind of want to throw in here. You know, my my epiphany on on, on this came. I mean, I, I've I've been a lifelong Democrat and a liberal and and and, and all of that. And my my epiphany came back in 1987. Actually, it was 1985. There was a congressman a young congressman in Georgia by the name of Pat Swindoll, and he got up and voted against famine aid for Ethiopia. There was 15 members of the House who voted against famine aid for Ethiopia. He was one of them. And so I really, uh, I thought, oh, God, there's, there's no point in talking to this guy about anything else if that's, if that's where he's coming from. And right. the, uh, the the founder of Results, uh, Sam Harris, uh, you know, said, "Well, yeah, you can you know wait till the next election, you know, but in the meantime, there's forty thousand children dying a day every day from preventable causes." And so we actually, uh, in in our chapter, we actually said a prayer for Pat Swindoll, and the prayer wasn't, you know, dear God, you know, let you know change 
Pat's uh, mind and, and, and his heart because he's such a jerk or anything like that. No, the, the, the prayer was change our hearts to see, you know, that, that he's really just a human being who, who doesn't want to see people dying any, any more than we do. And, uh, and, and we actually, we, we started approaching him in a different way. Uh, and long story short, two years later, uh, results uh, was pushing a, a piece of legislation called the Self-Sufficiency for the Poor Act. It was about microcredit. And we got, not only did we get him to co-sponsor that bill, uh, but I, you know, I, I, I was going, I, I, when I went into the meeting, I, I said to my wife, uh, you know, I think he's going to say yes to this. And when he says yes to this, we're going to ask him to, uh, to to write a piece in one of the newspapers about why he's supporting it. My wife said, oh, I don't know. You're kind of pushing it. I didn't even have to ask him. He when we talked to him, he said, I'll co-sponsor the bill. And, and of course, he hasn't even seen the bill. He's just taking our word for it. He said he would co-sponsor the bill. And then he says, you know, this is, the, this is such a great idea. I think, you know, the public needs to know about this. Can you write something uh, for me about this? And, and we'll run it as my column in, this, uh, in, in, in the local hmm. paper. And so, so here is this guy who voted against famine aid. And two years later, he's co-sponsoring the first microcredit bill in Congress, and I'm ghostwriting for him. So that 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 was my epiphany. Then that uh, if if you want to make a difference, you have to let go of being right. So so Steve, I have a, <laughs> I have a bit of a, a left turn here. Um, so I'm out here in the middle of the country, and so um, Sarah mentioned silos. So when I drive to work, I literally see silos uh, full of grain. Um, right. <laughs> and so I'm curious, uh-huh. sort of how uh, a carbon tax, um, or sorry, I should say a carbon fee and dividend um, might impact farmers. You know, fossil fuels are involved and they're, they're tied to fertilizer production. And, mm-hmm. you know, one thing I've learned by living out here right. for the past 15 years is, you know, farmers are hardworking people and anything that's going to make their costs go up and potentially their yields go down, you know, they're not going to be interested in it. So how how is the carbon fee and dividend structure going to work for, and this is regardless of whether they um, buy into, you know, whether they are buy into climate change and all of those things, you know, we have some very green-minded farmers. But ultimately, um, how is if those costs are going to be passed down to them and their fertilizer, you know, it's going to be tough to get their support. So how how does it work mm-hmm. on how does the fee and dividend structure work on sort of that nuts and bolts level for someone out here? Right, right. So 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 first off, um, you know these additional costs that will be filtering down to the farm, they're going to, they're going to filter down to, to all farmers. So the cost then in, in, in theory would be passed on to the consumers. Uh, you know, food prices might go up a little bit, basically any, anything that involves, uh, you know, energy uh, is, you know, the price on it will, will increase by some. And so that's why we're giving the money back to households is, is because we, we, we know that those costs are going to go up and we want uh, everybody to be able to absorb those costs economically. And so that, that, that's, that's why we're, we're, we're giving money right. back. However, you know, there, but, but for, for, for farmers, there, there, there might be some extenuating circumstances. You know, sometimes they, 
they can't dictate, you know, what the what the price of their crop is going to be, and 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 so on, and and, and so forth. So, it might be a situation where, as the bill is being developed, and uh, as you know, particularly people from the from from the from representatives from the from the Midwest and and from the Farm Belt and and, and all that get involved with it there there, there may be uh you know a little bit of tweaking to uh to, to help them out on that you know it, it's it's not like we're going to say okay this this is the bill that we want and it, there, there can be no uh, variations on you, you you can't you know do anything else with it no no if, if there if there are concerns you know then you know congress you know the 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 congress people who represent those farmers will will jump in there and say well what about them you know and some something will happen some you know something you know some kind of an exception uh or an exemption or something will be done to uh, to help out the agricultural community i think right and the reason i ask is because you know as we think about something like a fee and dividend it's you know it's trying to incentivize you know sort of theoretically weaning people off of fossil fuels, but someone, you know, a, uh, a farmer, you know, on a certain level, they are ultimately almost permanently tied to the fossil fuel industry because they use fertilizer. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they might drive all the electric cars in the world, but ultimately if their costs of fertilizer are going up, are they locked in in a way that this fee and dividend structure might not actually come out you know, may not favor them. And, and then they, then they're not going to, you know, then they might get mad at their representative or Senator for voting for this, for this bill, mm-hmm. um, regardless of, again, regardless of, and that's really where the question was coming from. Has Citizens Climate Lobby really looked at, are there fixed components of our economic system that are going to be tied to fossil fuels um, that might make this, as you sort of mentioned, a little bit more, um, you know, make, make the bill a little more clunky or, you know, require a carve out or something like that. So mm-hmm. that was really where the question was coming from. Right, right. And, and, and in terms of the fertilizers and, and, and so forth, um, you know, it, it may end up being that there are, you know, exceptions made for, uh, for, for fossil fuels that are not burned. You know, so, you know, if you're making plastics or fertilizers or something like that, that's, you're not burning it in that process, and so you're not creating the CO2. So it could be that something is carved out that a lot, you know, kind of gives a rebate to people who are using, buying these fuels, but not burning them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And I think the other option for farmers is, you know, if we put a price on carbon, one of the things that's going to happen is where the, the demand for for wind and solar energy is is going to skyrocket. Well, who has you know tons and tons of land where you can put you know wind turbines or uh, or, or or lots of solar panels? You know, there's there's money for farmers to be made. Uh, you know, feeding the grid with, uh, with 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 power that can be generated on their land. Right. Right. Yep. That's yeah. That is true. So I'd like to ask um, maybe one of our final questions and zoom out a little bit um, to a planetary scale and um, talk about this issue between political realities and planetary realities. Um, 
by the, our best guesses, we have until 2050 to get to carbon neutrality as a planet in order to stay within the two degrees C window agreed upon by the, the Paris Agreement. Mm-hmm. And, and so there, there are real physical realities that we are right up against in terms of the kinds of planetary trajectories that we're looking at in the future. These decisions, they matter so much. And as a as an earth scientist, I am again and again drawn back to the the fundamental reality that we have to um, immediately and rapidly and drastically and radically change the way that we produce and use energy and and move around and how we eat. All these systems need to change, right? right? But um, when I when I move away from that that scientific uh, earth science mindset and I move into a space as as a voter and a citizen, someone who's consuming political media, thinking about political realities, those worlds do not connect very well. And we have a lot of people talking about political realities and with, with a vacuum of scientific reality. And we have a lot of people talking about planetary realities with, without any, um, uh, sort of grounding in the political realities. And so I wonder, you sit at this really in, interesting space where you have to juggle both of those things. Mm-hmm. Do you have any recommendations for those of us trying to do this work better, moving between those two worlds? Yeah, the, the, there are the political realities uh, you know, that, that do bump up against the, the, the more pressing reality of, holy crap, our world is literally on fire. Uh, we have yeah. we have to do something now, um, yeah. And yeah, it, 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 it's it, it's taking longer than we hoped it would take to to get these solutions. But uh, I, I, I would I would just say that uh, you know ultimately, uh, you know, we have to prevail in in this political space. And and I and I think the uh, we're starting to see a, a turning point. In terms of you know people really seeing you know it, it you know ten years ago there weren't that many people who were actually kind of feeling the impact of climate change now you're now you're seeing people feel I mean talk to the people in Houston uh, you know who got four feet of water in their front yard last year it's uh, you know so yeah. so I, I I think we're we're reaching a point where the physical aspects of, of, of climate change are starting to catch up with the political reality. And, and you're starting to see more and more people connecting the dots that, oh, wow, that I'm, I'm really, you know, particularly me and, and in the future, you know, my, my children and my grandchildren are going to get screwed if we don't do something. And, and, and you're seeing that reflected now in, in public opinion polls like the Yale Project on, on climate change communication, they, they just updated their uh, climate opinion maps. And mm-hmm. 68% of Americans said they would support a, uh, a, a carbon tax where the, uh, where, where the revenue was given back to, uh, to, to households. And in the question, I think they said something like, you know, reducing other taxes or something like that. But that's more than two thirds of, of, of the country now is, is behind the solution. And so what has to happen now, obviously, is, is to get that 68% to, 
you know, making phone calls, writing letters, uh, you know, to, to their members of Congress saying, hey, <laughs> do this, do this now. So that's uh, I, I think that's that's where the encouragement is, is to be found, is that the public opinion now is starting to catch up with with the reality that, wow, we really do have to do something. And, and of course, you know, Congress traditionally lags behind what people want, but we, we just have to keep pushing ahead with that and and organizing and getting people to talk to their members of Congress. And, and, and by the way, if any of your listeners want to get involved with this, uh, with this effort, of course, you know, visit us at citizensclimatelobby.org. You can, like I said, we've got over 400 chapters, so there's bound to be a chapter uh, near just about everybody in, in the country. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's a really great theme, this idea of we have to prevail. Um, I think it's actually a great place to, to close the, close the show today. Um, the idea of, you know, we can make progress on this and, um, we, you know, the realities political and, and scientific are butting up against each other, but we have to prevail to make the future livable for everybody. And so, um, I guess I just want to thank you, Steve, for taking time out of your day to talk with us today about the great work you guys are doing at Citizens Climate Lobby. Um, and uh, thank you, Andy and Sarah, for joining in on this conversation. And uh, I look forward to the amazing work that Citizens Climate Lobby will do moving forward. And um, keep, you know, we'll just close it with, we have to prevail. I think that's a great way to close the show today. So thank you all so much. <laughs>